the Irish Times business podcast in association with Irish Life. Eight of the top ten Irish companies choose to do business with us. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life. Hello and welcome to Inside Business with Kieran Hancock, a podcast from the Irish Times. This week we'll be hearing about the latest warnings around the economy. Central Bank Governor Philip Lane has urged the Minister for Finance to introduce measures to cool the economy, while the Exchequer returns for August showed tax revenues running slightly behind target. You'll also hear from Mark Paul and Mr Justice Peter Kelly's decision to appoint High Court inspectors to independent news and media following applications from the state's corporate watchdog, the ODCE. Uh, but first, as always, we're going to start with a roundup of some of the biggest news stories of the week. And joining me in the studio is Irish Times business reporter, Peter Hamilton. Peter, you're very welcome. Uh, we're going to start with Ryanair and some good news for passengers in, in the sense that uh, the airline seems to have struck a deal with its pilots. That's right. The dispute now is effectively over uh, after Irish-based pilots struck a deal. or well, they accepted the deal. The deal was struck uh, before now. So this, the, the dispute in this case is worth reminding people, which led to five days of strike action, was surrounding base transfers, promotions, leave and other issues. The hundred or so pilots have accepted this. Uh, after Kieran Mulvey was installed or, or agreed uh, as a mediator to deal with the issue. So after this, Mr Mulvey will continue in an oversight role. Uh, and now that it's all over, he appealed to Ryanair to lift and withdraw the letters of protective notice that they issued to employees. So hopefully this this uh, is the end of that. And do we know what's been agreed? I mean, what's in the deal? Why have pilots agreed to this? The details are a bit sketchy on this. Uh, as we mentioned, base transfers, there are some issues in there around seniority as well. Pilots had an issue with that. Uh, it, it's not very clear what all of this means to well to the regular punter. It's not an mm. issue that we would regularly encounter. In. OK, well, the good news is, for them is that the, the strikes, uh, pilot-related strikes at least, uh, should be a thing of the past for now. Hopefully with Ryanair at least. Yeah, yeah. OK. All right, let's talk about housing. Uh, some stats out this week. Uh, a number of different indicators this week on the housing front. We're going to start with Sherry Fitzgerald. They had some numbers out today on the uh, number of homes for sale in the Republic at the minute. That's right. So they found that the number was starting to creep up, which is obviously a good sign for those looking uh, for, for, for a home. These would be but mostly second-hand homes, I presume. These are, second, these are only second-hand homes. So the number of second-hand homes coming to market starting to creep up, but it's still more than, 50, more than well, it's 52% lower than it was in July 2010. The number now is 25,800. So there are 25,800 second-hand homes for sale uh, in July. So, look, it's somewhat positive. That's up 3%. These are, these are for sale on the Sherry Fitz website or is it other websites as well? Th- these are these are second-hand homes across the market. Across the market, so not just Sherry Fitzgerald. Not just Sherry Fitzgerald, no. Right. And what these figures show us is that this the stock of properties, this, mm. this represents about 1.4% of the total stock of private houses. Now, What's interesting about this is for a functioning market, Cherry Fitzgerald say that figure needs to be somewhere between four and a half and six percent. So we're still very far off from a functioning market, uh, and and this comes with previous with, with with other warnings this week. Karen Holmes, the house builder, they said that buying one of their homes is forty two percent cheaper than renting it. Uh, so we have all of these Sometimes issues. Your monthly repayments, I presume. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and and with all with those high monthly repayments, are the issues with securing a deposit. And also this week, the Banking and Payments Federation said that the median deposit for first time buyers was around thirty seven and a half grand more yeah. in Dublin. The interesting thing about Karen Homes, and I know they've got a mix of apartments and houses, and some of them are expensive, and some of them are less expensive, and all of that. Some of them at the top of the market, and others at lower ends of mm. the market. But the average price of a Karen Homes uh, house 
in the first half of the year was just a shade under €400,000. Yeah. Which is very expensive and it's not in the first time buyer bracket. No, well, it was was 326 or 356. So, yeah, it, 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 whatever whatever it was, I suppose the, the house, their, what was interesting about that report as well was that their house prices were considerably lower than their apartment prices. Now, that's obviously... Uh, a function of location but no they're, they're, look they're not yes they do have some they're, high end schemes and Marianella and Rathgar would be one yeah they're above average they are above average mm. but uh, nonetheless what Karen is saying was reflected in a daft.ie report a couple of weeks ago as well they said in, in almost every region across almost every house type it was more expensive to rent than it was to repay a mortgage and this all comes, uh, Peter, of course, a week after The Economist said, announced to the world that Dublin house prices were 25% overvalued when compared against income. Absolutely. Now, of course, that sounds bad and it is bad, but it's worth noting in London, it's considerably higher uh, and in other, in other big cities. So Dublin is becoming one of those big uh, cosmopolitan cities. Yeah, it's probably have no great uh, comfort uh, to first-hand buyers in particular looking to get on the property market. Brexit, is, it's never far away, Peter, and Patrick Coveney, the chief executive of Greencore, that big sandwich maker, uh, the biggest sandwich maker in the world. He was speaking at a, an agri-food conference in Dublin this morning and he had some very dark pronouncements to make about the potential impact of Brexit. He did. We've heard about medicines shortages. We've heard about these issues in the past. He said today that Britain faces the prospect of fruit and veg shortages and the rotting of food uh, as a result of Brexit. If there is a no deal, if they break out of the union... This all sounds a bit stark. Well, well, look, it's not the first warning of its type. There have been similar warnings in the UK up to now. So this isn't really all that new. I suppose we have been warned and people are worried. People are worried about lack of medicines more particularly. Um, So, look, I suppose in the absence of an agreement, he said there'll be widespread food shortages and Greencore's 12,000 staff in the UK, he said maintaining their jobs will be one of the company's biggest challenges. Presumably if they can't get fruit and veg, they'll be eating Greencore sandwiches. Well, the fruit and veg for green course sandwiches mightn't be uh, too abundant either, so I don't know. Well, uh, ham and cheese and a bit of pickle, uh, <laughs> in, they'll, be, uh, they'll, they'll be fine. All right. And uh, Michael Creed, uh, he also had something to say about Brexit at the same conference this morning. Yeah, he said a no deal. Look, this is the same, same thing we've already heard, but no deal is the worst possible deal for the agri-food sector and would almost certainly result in the imposition of significant tariffs. So we know all of that. I yeah, suppose. sure. OK, now Delada is the uh, biggest hotel chain in Ireland, led by Pat McCann. They had their interim results out, uh, another set of uh, stellar results from Pat and his team at Delata. And according to Pat, there will be no slowdown in the price growth that is being experienced in the Dublin hotel sector at the minute, in spite of more... Uh, uh, more supply coming into the market and also in, in spite of some data emerging from uh, industry watchers suggesting that this might be the case. That's right. So the industry watchers you refer to there are STR and they said that revenue per available room, a key metric in the hotel industry, that that'll start to fall next year. Pat doesn't agree with that. Pat, Pat says he expects growth to continue. Uh, and Pat is, is one of those who believes that we will have a supply-demand equilibrium by 2020. So even with those two uh, issues, Pat, Pat still thinks that, uh, that that prices will continue to rise this year. No, he is a glass-half-full type of chap, isn't he? He is. He's very optimistic. And I suppose he has reason to be optimistic. They're, they're, the revenue per available room for Delata this year in the first half of the year increased by €10 Euro to over €105 Euro, uh, in Dublin, just in Dublin. Um, so look, it's, it's a positive set of results and he, he probably has the data to back these up. But, he, but he's, he's worried also uh, 
as the budget looms. He's worried about the reduction in the VAT rate for hotels. Uh, th- look, we've heard a lot about this up to now. Pat thinks it could wipe about 2% off the group's revenues if the VAT rate is increased from 9% to 13.5%. All right, okay. And Delada is hedging its bets uh, in terms of future growth because it's going more and more into the UK market now, isn't it? That's right. Now, the, the majority of its hotels are still here, but absolutely, it, it just signed a deal for a Manchester hotel um, and, and it has a fairly ambitious pipeline over the next two years. So it is well hedged in that regard, in the, in the VAT regard, yeah. All right, Peter Hamilton, thank you for joining us. Now, it's been another extraordinary week in the life of independent news and media, one of the biggest news publishers in Ireland. In a hard-hitting judgment on Tuesday, Mr Justice Peter Kelly indicated that he will appoint High Court inspectors to investigate alleged misconduct and malfeasance at the Irish-owned media group. This all flowed from a whistleblower disclosure by former CEO Robert Pitt and a subsequent application by the state's corporate watchdog, the ODC, to have the inspectors appointed. It's a complicated story, but here to make sense of it all is Mark Paul, business correspondent of the Irish Times, who was in court on Tuesday when the judge gave his ruling and who's been following this story now for a couple of years. Mark, what did uh, Mr Justice Peter Kelly have to say? Well, on Tuesday, Mr Justice Peter Kelly delivered his judgment on the, on this application for High Court inspectors by the ODC. Just to, I suppose to give you a vignette on what the whole thing is about again, the former chief executive of INM has made loads of allegations against its former chairman, Leslie Buckley, in relation to his conduct. And there's been allegations of a suspected data breach that Leslie Buckley is alleged to have been involving in, in helping to oversee. And there are also allegations that he pressured INM executives to overpay for assets that were owned by Dennis O'Brien at Communicor and Dennis O'Brien, of course, is INM's main shareholder. So all of these allegations have been outlined ad nauseum in, in, in High Court documents over the last six months, while the ODC has been trying to get High Court inspectors appointed to the company. And what happened on Tuesday was that the judge came back with his decision on whether an inspector should be appointed. And he, Just before we say that, what's the import of having High Court inspectors appointed? What kind of powers do they have? They have far-reaching powers. They have more powers than than the Director of Corporate Enforcement. The Director of Corporate Enforcement can ask the officers of a company or, or management of a company to supply them with documents or whatever. He can compel them to do that, uh, but not anybody else. A High Court inspector can compel any Irish citizen who is involved with a company and any Irish resident to provide him with information, him or her with information on the business. So they can demand to see documents. Any documents they like, pretty much, the company has to turn it over. They can take evidence from people under oath. So obviously people are in trouble if they, unless they tell the truth in that situation. And they can demand all sorts of access to people's mobile phones, to their documents, to their records, to their, to, their mem- to their memos. And they're an officer of the court. So if they're unhappy with the level of cooperation that they're getting from somebody, they can go back to the court and, and give out and they can have their powers extended. So it's really, really a very powerful position. The most recent notable use of it would have been at DCC a decade ago, the whole Jim Flavin affair and so on. That was Bill Shipsey, uh, he was the High Court Inspector there. So on Tuesday, Mr Justice Peter Kelly came back with his decision and he agreed with the ODC that a High Court Inspector should be appointed to independent news and media. He didn't make the appointment yet. He gave the company 48 hours grace to decide what they wanted to do, whether they wanted to appeal and so on. But he made it very clear that he intends to appoint inspectors, probably on Thursday. And in his judgment, he made some very, very strong comments about the evidence that had been put before him. Now, it wasn't his job to make findings a fact, right? It was just his job to decide whether or not inspectors should be appointed. But he made some very strong comments, for example, in relation to Leslie Buckley, the former chairman. He says, and and I'm quoting the judge from from his judgment, he says, I hold that Mr Buckley 
On the evidence before me, the circumstances suggest that he has been guilty of misconduct and misfeasance. Now, that's a very, very, very strong thing for a judge to say in, in, in a judgment. Again, he's not making a finding of fact, but he's saying the circumstances suggest this. Now, Leslie Buckley, just today on Wednesday afternoon, has put out a statement saying that he thinks the High Court inspectorship will help him to vindicate his good name. But so he rejects the allegations that have been made against him? He rejects. Him. He's, he's always rejected all the allegations, but he's never presented... He's always asserted that he rejects it. He's never... Uh, presented uh, an alternative case. Presented an, 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 an alternative outline of facts, apart from to say that this data breach where where cybersecurity experts paid for by Dennis O'Brien ultimately were given secret access to IT's email servers, journalists' emails and so on. And the ODCD has said in court that this was paid for by Bladen, a company controlled by Mr O'Brien. Leslie Buckley has always said that this was part of some cost reduction exercise. That's the only alternative facts. What's the ODCD's view on that? Well, the ODCD didn't accept that. And uh, uh, the High Court judge, Mr Justice Peter Kelly, seemed to prefer the ODCE's suggestion that there are still concerns around that explanation. I think what the judge said in his judgment yesterday was that the evidence that he had seen didn't seem to explain how this data breach could be part of a cost reduction exercise. But there were, there were other strong comments that the judge made. He said that this hullabaloo around around a proposed deal for News Talk, where um, it's alleged that, that Leslie Buckley pressured INM to overpay for News Talk. He said the circumstances surrounding this are suggestive of an unlawful purpose directed to the benefit of Mr. O'Brien, directly or indirectly. It's a very, very striking thing for the judge to say. He also referred to text messages that arose during the case between Dennis O'Brien and Leslie Buckley, in which Leslie would send information to Dennis O'Brien that it appeared other shareholders didn't have, and he would preface this, the sending this information with messages such as, you know, I, I wanted you to see this, Dennis, first. And uh, the judge said that the apparent disclosure of the company's commercially sensitive information has about its circumstances which suggest that this has been conducted for an unlawful purpose. He said that the interactions between uh, Mr. O'Brien and Mr. Buckley seemed to suggest that Mr. O'Brien had effectively an advantage over other shareholders. He said um, the material, referring to those text messages, he said, if correct, seems to demonstrate a pattern of wrongful disclosure of price-sensitive information by Mr. Buckley to Mr. O'Brien. So it really was a very, very significant judgment. It means that High Court inspectors are going to go in, barring an appeal by INM. Now, INM could choose to appeal this. That doesn't necessarily mean it would stop inspectors going in straight away. It depends on whether or not and that would be at the discretion of a court and they would have to go to the Court of Appeal every 21 days probably to go to the Court of Appeal. Court of Appeal might decide whether they, whether the, the inspectors ship had to be halted while this is ongoing or they might choose not to appeal at all. They've already tried to stop this process through judicial review. They failed on that. They tried to stop the appointment of the inspectors by saying it was the wrong thing to do. They failed on that. So it remains to be seen what value they could get out of an appeal. But What will the impact of this be on day-to-day operation of INM, Mark? Because INM has made some comments to the court about this, hasn't it? They have. INM hired this guy called Kim Green, an insolvency expert from uh, and, and an accountant, effectively a forensic accountant from the UK. And he submitted an affidavit to the High Court in which he said that there would be huge for INM if inspectors were appointed. He didn't quantify what the entire cost was effectively, but what he said was, he said that it could increase the company's borrowing costs. He said that they might have to hire specialist personnel to deal with it. They said that it would be a distraction of management's time. He pointed out to the reduction in the company's share price from the moment that it became known that the ODC would seek high court inspectors. And now a lot of his evidence was rejected by the ODCE in their applying affidavits. And the judge 
seems to have preferred the ODCE's assessment of, of Mr Green's evidence. The judge pointed out, highlighted something that the ODCE said. They said, look, this guy Kim Green knocked together his report so quickly that uh, in effect it can't have been done to the level of detail that it should have been done. And that's in, 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 in the judgment. But look, whatever happens, um, um, assuming High Court inspectors go in, um, whether it's tomorrow, Thursday, or whether it's in, in, in the coming days, what they'll effectively do, first of all, is they'll, the High Court inspectors will ask to get all of the documents. Then they'll probably touch base with McCann Fitzgerald, who was the legal team. Then there'll probably be some liaison officers designated with INIM to give them whatever they want, in effect. Now, I'm told that in this circumstance, it's unlikely that the High Court inspectors who include Richard Fleck, um, who is a UK lawyer, and uh, Sean Galan, an Irish, mainly criminal lawyer. I'm told that it's unlikely that they will be physically ensconced in the building with their own desk. Um, you know, uh, they won't be sort of in babysitting INM management on a day-to-day basis. They're in effect looking for evidence of historical events. So it's not like an examiner or a receiver or something like that going in as an officer of the court where they effectively get to run the whole company day-to-day. And what's the import for Leslie Buckley, the former chairman, and Dennis O'Brien, who's still the major shareholder at INM? Do the high court inspectors have the powers to interview them? Yes, they do. And most importantly, probably for Leslie Buckley, is that the report of a High Court inspector can, on a prima facie basis, be taken as fact in other civil proceedings. So Leslie Buckley is being sued by INM for his alleged conduct, which the company alleges contributed to financial damage to, 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 to the business. Now, if that case progresses and the High, the high Court inspector has, has issued his report in the meantime, that report can be introduced into evidence in civil proceedings. So it could have it could have an impact for... Could have far-reaching consequences for Leslie Buckley. What could, about Dennis O'Brien? Has he made any statements? Dennis O'Brien has never made any statement whatsoever about all this has gone on at INM. The only thing is, when Joe Brennan, uh, uh, the finance correspondent of, of, of the Irish Times, was in Davos in January, he managed to talk to Dennis O'Brien briefly and he asked Dennis O'Brien about the ongoing situation at INM and Dennis O'Brien basically said that Leslie Buckley, in his, in his opinion, Leslie Buckley had saved INM and that uh, Leslie Buckley was a good man and he, he'd be, you know, it, 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 it'd all be proven. And that's in effect is all he has said. Now, High Court Inspector will have the power to seek to take evidence from Dennis O'Brien potentially on oath. Dennis O'Brien, one would assume, would be willing to cooperate with something like that. But if he didn't, then the the High Court Inspector would have to go back before the court, in effect. Mm. Um, Now, the company that paid the bill for the data interrogation, which is being (coughs) characterised as a suspected data breach now, that company is a company called Bladen in the Isle of Man. And that company is controlled by Dennis O'Brien. Now, the High Court Inspector obviously can seek the cooperation, the direct cooperation of Bladen, but he can't compel it because it's outside of the state. So, But he could go back to the to the court if he was having difficulties getting any sort of information. And there's no suggestion that he will have any difficulties. Perhaps everybody involved from Dennis O'Brien to Bladen will cooperate fully and tell the High Court Inspector whatever they want to know. You have to imagine, Mark, this is going to be hugely distracting for INM at a very crucial time yeah. in uh, the company's uh, history, if you like, because we're still in this very painful transition from print media to digital media. INM doesn't have a digital paywall in place as no, no it doesn't. It, 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 it doesn't, and it's had what what it, what it has had is a ninety million euro cash pile. Which which they've been holding up as their sort of their safety net and so on, but that's that started to burn now, um, and it dropped by about six percent in the last uh, set of interim results. So INM is in a difficult position. It'll probably be at least two years before a High Court inspector issues their final report. The, the judge has said he wants an interim report by April of next year. They'll probably address these things in modules. But whilst this process is going on, this whole palaver 
um, hangs over the head of INM as an investment opportunity. It's still listed on the stock market. All of this has been built into its share price. Um, the share price didn't move really at all yesterday when High Court agreed to appoint inspectors. Although it dropped for some reason 10% early today on, uh, on, on, on Wednesday morning. But in effect, the cloud will stay over INM until um, the High Court inspector reports. Uh, and even then, the cloud may not lift. There's a lot of people whose data they allege has been improperly accessed. Some of those people will engage in, in direct litigation with INM. Um, there's a direct litigation with Leslie Buckley. The company has said it will go after anybody who has caused financial damage. Um, anybody, anybody at all. So whoever that might be, that litigation could run for a long time. So this this whole scenario, this cloud over INM doesn't look like it's in, in, in danger of lifting at any time soon. Okay, and it's Thursday morning when Mr Justice Peter Kelly will essentially hear from INM again and, and make his decision on uh, appointing the inspectors. Yeah, he's already made the decision to appoint. That decision has been made. It's a case of when the judge pulls the trigger and actually appoints them and sends them in. And so he gave INM 48 hours to think about what they wanted to do. In effect, I guess, to decide if they want to have that a... That was at the company's yeah. behest though, wasn't it? Uh, that was INM, yeah, that was at INM's request, at INM's barrister's request. Shane Murphy requested a delay to figure out what they were going to do, basically to consider the judgment, to have a read of it. It's 76 pages long. It covers these events in, in, in great detail. Mm. So they wanted a chance to consider it and then to come back and have a chat about costs. Because so far in, in, in this financial year, um, INM has incurred €2 million Euros in legal costs directly in relation to this. But if they get lumped with the costs for the whole thing, that could, that the could bill could run up significantly. Yeah, it could run up significantly, yeah. Okay, Mark, uh, it sounds like there's going to be many more twists and turns in this story before it's all fully concluded. And no doubt we'll have you back on the podcast to go through them in due course. Uh, Mark Paul, thank you for joining us. Okay, we're going to take a short break now. When we return, I'll be talking to Cliff Taylor and Omar Kennedy of the Irish Times about the central bank's warning to the government that it should take measures to cool the economy. Back in a few moments. Only 29% of us know how much we need to live on in retirement. Irish Life is changing that with Empower, a new approach to company pensions that helps change the way your employees think about their future. For more, go to irishlifeempower.ie or talk to your pension consultant. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life. Irish Life Assurance PLC is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland. All information sourced for Irish Life June 2015. Welcome back. This is Inside Business with Kieran Hancock. Remember, you can subscribe to this podcast for free on iTunes and it's also available on our website, irishtimes.com forward slash podcast. Now, this week we had exchequer returns for August showing that income was slightly behind target, while the Central Bank of Ireland governor warned the government of potential overheating in the economy. He also urged Minister of Finance Pascal Donoghue to implement measures to cool our economic growth. And joining me in studio to ponder these issues are Cliff Taylor and Owen Burke Kennedy of the Irish Times. Umber Kennedy, uh, you've been following uh, both of these uh, measures this week. Let's start with the August exchequer returns. Uh, slightly behind target in terms of uh, revenues, but a bit of a mixed bag, I suppose. Yeah, a little bit of a surprise that we've fallen behind target, but uh, nothing that would unduly uh, tax, excuse upon the Department of Finance. Um, we're about 100 million behind what they targeted for the first eight months of the year. But I should say we're about 5% up on last year, and mm. that just reflects the kind of buoyancy of the economy. So what's behind the reduction in revenue? Well, one of the big kind of standouts, I suppose, that's been going on is excise duty. They're about 250 million off what they targeted for excise duty. Now, this is explained by the... These um, are the old reliables. Yeah, the plain packaging uh, around cigarettes. Uh, basically, retailers have, have block bought uh, cigarettes in the past uh, ahead of this plain packaging uh, introduction. So it's just made uh, excise duty a bit more difficult for the department to predict 
So they were stockpiling it in advance of, of this measure coming in. So that should wash out, presumably, in next exactly, year's and that's what the department said yesterday, that this thing was still working itself. Okay, so through we don't need system. to be worried about that. No, there's nothing really to unduly worry uh, people around these figures. I mean, we have been running we have been running ahead of target, and that's been the kind of norm for a few months. And now we're a little bit behind target. But essentially, the, for the Department of Finance mandarins, they're pretty much on target. They would see that 100 million in the context of 60 billion tax and revenue is pretty small beer. Yeah, Cliff, we have a record number of people in employment. We uh, learned that I think last week. We have a storming economy, as I, I mentioned. I think we're still the fastest growing economy in the Eurozone. Uh, we have a very low interest rate environment and all of that. I mean, the backdrop for the government in terms of the public finances probably couldn't be uh, much better than what it is at the minute. And yet we're still running annual deficits, which seems to irk the central bank, if if nobody else. Indeed, it does irk the central bank. And I think, uh, interestingly, uh, the first people on the pitch this week were uh, some of Pascal Dunhu's own officials in the department who published a report on the national debt, not the sexiest of subjects perhaps. But you didn't have to read very far between the lines of the report to say that they were clearly telling the minister, look, the national debt is still high. 200 billion. 200 billion, uh, yeah. Uh, over 40,000 per person in the country, which is one of the highest in the industrial world. Uh, and that it would be wise, given the risks that the economy is facing, to move the budget into surplus next year rather than to continue to plan uh, to borrow. What's the government's plan to get it into surplus? When are they... 2020, as things stand. So as things stand now, um, the uh, intention, as outlined in the summer statement, is to have borrowing of about 350 million or 0.1% of GDP next year and to move into surplus in 2020. So originally the plan had been to move into surplus in 2019, but the government took its foot a bit off the off the gas, if you like, in terms of reducing the debt last year and, and, and pushed it out by a year. And I think what Philip Lane and what the officials in the minister's own department are saying, look, growth is very strong here. We're moving to, towards the end of the economic cycle, probably in terms of growth. Sooner or later, growth was slow. We, we don't quite know why, but experience would suggest it will and that it would be wise now to move the budget into surplus just to leave a little more leeway uh, when things do start to turn down. And I think it's interesting that Philip Lane put it in such a strong a strong way today, you know, emphasising the risks if this isn't done, that we could be back to the old boom and bust cycle and pointing to, I suppose, the key risk areas, particularly corporate tax revenue, which has surged in recent years, up, up to $8 billion now. Uh, people generally think that it's going to be sustainable, but in the current world of Trump and American tax and tax changes at European level, who knows, indeed. Uh, Owen, uh, just in terms of that central bank letter, I mean, how seriously should we take it? I mean, look back at previous years and the kind of advisory letters that the governor of the central bank, whether it was Philip Lane or Patrick Honahan, have sent to ministers again, whether it was Pascal Donu or Michael Noonan. How seriously does the government take those letters? Well, it's pretty standard economic advice, uh, you know, to to urge governments to run budgetary surpluses when times are good and uh, then keeping yourself a, a sort of buffer or a bit of leeway when times or the economic side. That's what we have the rainy day fund for. Yeah, I just, I just think the, the language around his warning has got a little bit more intense and you can, you can, you can sense that. But, you know, there's always this tension between economic prudence and uh, political reality. And, of course, the government are under incredible pressure to try and uh, push spending to deal with some of these infrastructural bottlenecks. So there is that tension going on, and that's hence why they've pushed out this kind of budgetary surplus target uh, further than what they had intended a few years back. But... um, you know, it, it, it seems like uh, the, the central bank governor has stepped up his warning. And 
mindful that we're all looking at these infrastructural deficits in the economy, he, he used in comments uh, around releasing the letter that um, the Scandinavian countries, the model for so much of the world, that they actually run um, budget surpluses when times are bad, so they don't have to retract spending on important projects, uh, you know, during the downturn. So that was his kind of way of saying to us that we look, we, we really need to follow a more stable model. Mind you, one of those countries, Norway, is also awash a with oil cash. True. So they're, they're in a much better position than Ireland in that respect. I wonder, Cliff, if uh, Philip Lane, we know that uh, he's very keen on a senior role in the European Central Bank, and there's a couple of those uh, uh, in the offing at the minute, Sharon Donnery of uh, the Central Bank of Ireland is also in the mix for one of those roles. I just wonder whether any of this plays uh, plays into that, whether he might be playing to the gallery, uh, the ECB gallery, as it were, uh, mm. somewhat uh, in some of his language to the government. You know, I'm, I'm getting tough with my government. I'm telling them what they need to do. I'm, I'm on side with the ECB message and the ECB message would be very much from the same hymn sheet, wouldn't it? Yeah, I mean, per- per- perhaps uh, perhaps that's the, ca- that's the case, all right. Uh, in fairness, I think Philip Lane did uh, get on the pitch a few months ago with this one uh, and and said, you know, quite clearly that the government needed to, to tighten up next year more, more than it intended to do. I think what you see coming across uh, when, he, when he speaks is kind of a bit of frustration. The, the, the old role of the central banker, uh, you know, in the days when cent- the Irish central bank controlled interest rates, would have allowed the central bank to step in and push up interest rates by now, thus cooling the economy. That's gone. We're members of the Eurozone now. We're members of the Eurozone. Interest rates are on the floor. They're going to stay on the floor until well. We're 1% well, of the Eurozone. Year. So whatever's happening in Ireland doesn't influence no cost, the ECB's no, no uh, decision making. Yeah. So in terms of measures to cool the economy, uh, Philip Lane and whoever is in his chair in the central bank is left telling the government, look, as Owen said, in good times, you should be tightening up, uh, number one, because that leaves uh, more leeway when times are bad. And number two, because you shouldn't be adding fuel to the fire. You know, when the economy is booming, you shouldn't be uh, making it boomier, to to, uh, to to use Bertie's famous phrase. Paraphrasing. So yeah. On that point, I'll come in here. Um the, the centre-back governor did actually say that if we had our own currency, the current fast-growing Irish economy would probably mean the punt would have been appreciating by now. And that would act as a kind of natural stabiliser on spending. So in the absence of that, because we're in a monetary union, he proposed the idea of maybe increasing VAT on some labour-intensive industries. So that's, did you give any examples? He just said labour-intensive industries, but you can bet your bottom dollar he means construction, he means the restaurant trade, those sort of places. Right, okay. Um, the hotel sector, maybe. Yeah, exactly. Special yeah. 9% fat rate. Yeah. Uh, Cliff, the curious thing is that uh, whatever you pronounce from that Pascal Dunne who makes about budget 2019, he dampens any expectation of a giveaway yeah. or uh, gives gives every sort of indication that he's a prudent chap and a conservative fellow and he's going to do nothing to rock the boat uh, and he wants to keep everything on an even keel. So where is this concern coming from? Yeah, I mean, look, like every government, the minister has to, I, every minister of finance, the minister has to face a number of ways at once when he's presenting the budget. I don't think anyone is saying that, you know, he's going mad. He's not, you know, throwing money all around the place or slashing taxes. Uh, we're not back to the days of kind of the budgets of the early 2000s where there were, you know, really significant tax cuts putting money into people's pockets. But I think what 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 economists are saying to the minister is, look, you need to just tighten up a bit. Uh, you need to give away a little bit less. You, you should be running a surplus now that the, the economy is strong. Uh, the minister's own argument is, look, the budget is broadly balanced, as the phrase the phrase is used. We're, we're keeping within the EU rules uh, and we're setting up a rainy day fund from next year into which he's committed 500 million. And I suppose from a political point of view, 
that 500 million can at least be ring fenced away and, and outside of the budget, uh, you know, the budget Punch and Judy show about where money should be spent. Fianna Fáil and the government both agree that this should happen, so it is going to happen. And some money is going to be transferred from uh, from the Strategic Investment Fund as well to that. So, so we will have a rainy day fund. It won't be particularly mm. big, but it could build up over a number of years. What's, what's your view on the surplus deficit issue? Should we be running a surplus at this time? Yeah, I think we should. Uh, I, I, I think it was... You know, I think a decision was made uh, last year to, to ease up a bit. Uh, I think it would be better to run a surplus. Uh, I think particularly uh, given how fast the economy is growing now and also particularly given the one specific risk we're facing next year, which is a disorderly Brexit. And look, the government has and its economic models uh, have, have gone through all kinds of machinations of what Brexit might mean for the Irish economy. And the government says, look, we factored all this into our sums in the years ahead. And that's the case. But nobody has, has tried to model what a uh, no-deal Brexit would look like. And, and all we can say is it could lead to a pretty significant shock to the economy next year, March, April, May, uh, heading towards the end of next year. So I think that is a strong reason. Are you saying that the government hasn't run any numbers on a no-deal Brexit? Well, I'm sure... <laughs> Because I don't think they can, uh, because nobody has a clue what it's going to look like. So yeah, they've run a uh, they've run numbers on what's called a hard Brexit, where trade barriers go up. Uh, but the expectation is that that would happen over a number of years. What nobody can model is the kind of chaos that would translate for a number of months from a triff edge Brexit. Who knows if that's going to happen or not? But most certainly, the risk of it has increased uh, given mm. the standoff between the UK and the EU. Now, I just think it's time for next year, particularly to leave a little bit of leeway there just in case we need to, to do something quickly. Yeah, I interviewed Danny McCoy, the Chief Executive of IBEC last week for yeah. the pages of the Irish Times and he said a no-deal Brexit was inconceivable. Those are his words because there was too much to lose yeah. on both sides. That's what everybody's been reckoning, uh, including the financial markets who've reckoned that, look, this just can't happen. If the markets thought there was going to be a no-deal Brexit, sterling would be, you know, a 10 cent uh, worse off against the pound uh, or against the euro at least uh, than it is at the moment. Uh, but the longer we go on, uh, the problem still remains that nobody has has seen a way out of this mm. uh, and particularly out of the dilemma of the Irish border. And uh, if that can't be sorted, there's, there's going to be no withdrawal agreement. Uh, and, and then we really are looking at an deal Brexit. Do I think it's going to happen? I think a way will probably be found to avoid it but do I think there's a risk of it happening? There's certainly a risk, uh, and it's not a trivial risk. It's not a risk that can be ignored. Oh, and there are a couple of other little economic indicators out during the week, like unemployment, for example, which you covered. Mm. Um, should we be happy, or how should we feel about those uh, numbers? I mean, they were revised upwards, but the number of jobless is actually coming down, but it's yeah, obviously so demographics and populations. Yeah, there's been a few... Re- big wholesale revisions to the population estimates and the long and the short of it is that unemployment instead of being 5.1% is, is uh, 5.6%. But the trajectory is still it down. It's quite a difference. It is quite a difference and, and it's the second big revision in 12 months. But the trajectory is still downward and that's been the singular kind of biggest and most important metric in Ireland's recovery. We were up nearly 16% in 2012, which was one of the highest in the EU and now we're three percentage points below the Eurozone average. So, I mean, previous central bank governor, uh, Patrick Honan, always said if you wanted to look at Ireland's recovery or, or get an accurate measure of it, unemployment was the stat to look at. 
Yeah, okay. Um, and Cliff, finally, just uh, briefly, if you like, on public sector pay and retention, that's mm. been in the headlines uh, again this week. Uh, what are the issues that play there? Well, a bit of a get-out-of-jail card for the government on the first report anyway, which looked at the medical sector, and particularly nursing, uh, arguing that, uh, and nurses in particular have been arguing their pay is too low and that uh, the sector can't retain nurses. And uh, basically the report said that this isn't the case uh, and that... Uh, there's no evidence that you know nurses are leaving or that it's hard to get people to apply for nursing jobs. It did uh, recommend some changes in allowances and uh, special allowances that nurses get. Uh, that that's likely to happen. It, it's not going to cost a huge amount of money. Obviously, the nursing unions aren't happy, uh, and you know the prospect of a strike. Uh, you know, the prospect of a strike remains. But there's going to be a series of these reports looking at different areas of the public sector, and it, I suppose it's just a. Uh, the government did a deal to to accelerate the repayment uh, of of uh, monies lost under the Lansdowne Road Agreement, and uh, that's going through. But uh, you know, public servants feel that they're being left behind. Some areas of the private sector, at least, seeing very significant increases. So this is just another area of pressure on spending that we've seen. Yeah. It's going to continue. Okay, all right. We'll see how it plays out. Of course, uh, don't forget that Budget 2019 coming up on October the 9th, and we'll be covering that in full on the day here on Inside Business. My thanks to Peter Hampton, Mark Paul, Cliff Taylor and Owen Burke Kennedy. Declan Conlon produced the show with JJ Vernon as sound engineer. Don't forget you can get the latest business news straight into your inbox by signing up to our business today. Email at irishtimes.com and you can also follow the Irish Times business feed on Twitter and Facebook. I'm Kieran Hancock. Until next time, take care.